Morning, everybody. Happy Independence Day, a day early. So glad that you're here. Also, as Charity said, we do have our, uh, our ribbon cutting, as it were, today for the new playground. And I just wanted to thank everyone so much for your generosity. Guys, we raised, I think, uh, $72,000, $73,000 um, starting Christmas Eve, and it's all paid off. So thank you. And, uh, and it's, it's really turned out great. Uh, I, I, I made sure all the kids got behind me and I tested it all out and, and, uh, and it's awesome. No. So we're going to have barbecue today. Please stay and, uh, and let's celebrate together. Okay. Let's jump in guys. Um, week five of our study in the New Testament book of Ephesians. If you're new to us, though, we're doing something a bit different today, which I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. We're taking an interlude this morning, a theological interlude. Ah, that's an ominous sound. Um, to, to, uh, to, to just pause and to, to reflect and to learn a little bit about an important and complex component in our theology. It's puzzling to many of us. And the issue is related to how salvation uh, for a person happens. Uh, specifically, does a Christian person um, choose to follow Jesus of their own will or not choose if they're not a Christian? Or does God do the choosing? Is it his will that sort of takes over here? And through choosing and, and election and predestination, is that how salvation happens in a person's life? So this is a, a classic debate. If you're not familiar with it in Christian theology, it's a, a wrestling match. You may have heard the terms Calvinism and Arminianism. Uh, these are words that sort of identify this, uh, this, this viewpoint or these two viewpoints. The Bible does seem to suggest different things in different passages related to, to this. Some passages, like in the book of Ephesians, kind of trigger more of a Calvinistic approach. Other passages, um, more of an Arminian approach. And I'll explain all this as we get in. So this is what prompts our study today. I wanted to just take a little bit of time and understand this. So just a warning for you. I'm not going to solve this problem. I'm not going to resolve this fully for you theologically, but I do think it's helpful for us to at least understand the contours and there's value for Christians to wrestle with scriptures and concepts because it's good for us when the Bible doesn't give us full resolution. Let's talk about this. Let's wrestle with it together, even difficult doctrines. So today's message has two parts. The first part, I want to give you a theological vision in general for your life and and for, for redeemers. And then I want to, I want to get into this question of, well, what causes or who causes salvation to happen? So let's, let's look at this low, this, this, this term called theology. Let's paint a vision for our theological growth here. Uh, when I say the word theology, many of you, I know immediately shut down. I saw some of your faces. Okay. I get it. Uh, you can't hide it. Um, it's a scary word or the word doctrine, theology, doctrine. It can be intimidating for some people. So some of us, it, it makes us feel stupid or inferior, or we feel a little out of our element here. Others of us, we hear the term theology or, or doctrine. And we're just like, this is boring, boring. And you're like starting to fall asleep. You know, and it's like, okay, I get that. That's like a reaction, visceral reaction there. Uh, a bunch of Greek words and paragraphs we read from dead guys from like 800 years ago. That's what you associate those terms with. But I want to encourage you all, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've already been doing really good theology, whether you like it or not. So let's give you your first fill-in if you're taking notes. Here's the statement. All disciples of Jesus are students of theology. All disciples of Jesus are students of theology, at least to some degree. 
Now, the biblical concept of discipleship encompasses much more than studying theology, but it's not less than that. To be a disciple literally means to be a student. The word disciple means a student of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Christ, guess what? You've already been living out theological truth. You're already a theologian. So consider this confessional statement. This is very simple, very powerful on the screen. This simple phrase, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. This is deeply theological. This is loaded with doctrine. For example, Jesus, the word Jesus. Okay, this is, this is telling us that Christ was a real person. He's rooted in history. He actually lived in human history, in real time and space. He's not made up. He's not a, a character in a fable or a story that we just derive some spiritual you know, truths from, generally speaking. This is an important theological belief that Christ is an actual person. Then the word is. The word is is not was, meaning that Jesus is alive. Jesus is an is and not a was. And so this is meaning the resurrection happened. It, it's current. He's actually still alive even today. He didn't just, you know, uh, live in Palestine in the um, you know, 2,000 years ago. And then the last word, Lord, which means he's God. He's divine. He's our master. He's our CEO. We get to know God's character by knowing Jesus. And so this is really good theology. And if, if you've sincerely said this, then you already have been doing great theology. So turn to your neighbor and say, if you're a Christian, say this to your neighbor. You're, you're a theologian, bro. You're a theologian or a sis. Now, if you've sincerely said this ever, then, then you're in good company because the earliest Christians said this all the way back to the first century before there were creeds and councils and theological classes even, right? This is the very first systematic theological statement that summarizes Christianity in existence. The apostle Paul wrote about it first in Romans 10, 9 and actually 2 Corinthians 2, 45. And so the very first systematic theology ever said in Christianity is this statement, Jesus is Lord. So you're a theologian. Now here's what happens when we start out as a Christian. We start out as disciples with a small handful of theological truth and statements like this that we've accepted, that have, 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 we've understood, that we take into our life. We internalize these things. But as we grow in our faith as Christians, many of us, many, many of us become more theologically curious about how the beliefs and doctrines of Christianity kind of spread out into everyday life and how they intertwine and how they're organized and how they're, how they're articulated. And so many of us become hungry for theology along the way. What else do we believe? Jesus is Lord. What else do we believe? Who's the Holy Spirit? Uh, we start asking questions. Well, how does this impact uh, heaven? How does this impact hell? How does this impact my marriage? Do my, does my dog go to heaven? Does my cat go to heaven? No. Uh, your dog, maybe. But I mean, I don't know. We just... What, what do the scriptures say about, and then we just fill it in, like the blank. Fill in the blank. And this becomes kind of this, that we are awakened, many of us, and to search the scriptures and to search our theology. So theological curiosity is from God. This is all from the Lord. You see, he sort of wires us this way. And this hunger, it's from him. And so the question is, well, how do I respond with this hunger? And what we do is we study and we learn and we have conversations with other believers 
So never do theology by yourself, okay? Uh, you'll get weird real quick. Uh, this is why there's so many weird theologies out there. It's because people sort of hide themselves in their closets and they read a few books and then they start to just kind of get isolated. But what we do is we have study and learning and conversation with our brothers and sisters in our small groups, with our pastors, and we conversate. It's a communal process. But this is though one of the ways that we grow as followers of Jesus, we hunger for theological maturity. Now, let me give you just a couple of goals that we're shooting for as together, our church family, we grow and we mature theologically. There's targets we're shooting for. We have three of them on your handouts. This is kind of our vision, our vision theologically for our church as we do this. So the goals are this. Number one is we want to build a strong foundation. We want to build a strong foundation of our beliefs We don't want to just have random beliefs or intermingled of our own opinions. We want to dig in to scripture. We want to set the foundation and we want to build our lives. Theological learning helps us do this. We want a God confidence in what we believe. All right. We don't want to just be random or just, we we don't want to be arrogant either. It's a God confidence, not a self-confidence. Arrogant uh, theologians or people who know theology, that's not a really a good combo Uh, Also not to be confused with, I got it all figured out. I got it all figured out type of people. They're not very fun to be around, are they? Are they? Uh, You know, it's a turnoff. So uh, this is our goal as a strong foundation in the God confidence in what we believe. Secondly, we want a Christ-like attitude to develop in our hearts. Growing more theologically grounded should make us sweeter, kinder, gentler, and more compassionate people. Not meaner, not more flippant, and not more judgy. Have you ever met someone who is theologically knowledgeable, but that person was belittling to others? They're, they're like the theology police, and you're, you know, well, actually, what the scriptures say, and you're just like, oh my goodness, this guy, shut this guy up, shut this guy, I'm going to punch this guy in the face. Like, like you just, you don't want to be around this, these kind of people. All right, they're judgy. Um, and this is one of the reasons, I didn't mention this before, like, what turns people off to theology, not only is, is it just kind of a foreign territory, but many of us get turned off because we've seen bad models. We've seen knowledgeable people who are jerks. And so it's like we associate that. It's like, I don't want that. I don't want to do that. If that's how you turn out, then you just naturally back away from this. So uh, we want to have an environment and a church family where our doctrinal learning produces more of Jesus and the love of God in our lives. It changes and transforms our inner minds, hearts, our person. That's the approach to our theological training. Christ-like attitude. And then finally, our last goal is Christ-like action. The goal of theological training is never to just pile up knowledge and learning and stack it up in our brains just to store it there. We're not stockpiling data so that we can win Bible quiz competitions or we can answer questions, you know, when we're watching Jeopardy. About once a week, Jeopardy has like a Bible category. And, uh, and everybody struggles. Uh, but not us, because we know our theology. Um, so the goal of Christian theological learning is deeper worship. This is an action of us. To, to, 
to, to enter into worship. So when we're singing songs like Amazing Grace, we can really, we can open up our hearts and our minds because we so appreciate what Jesus has done because our theological understanding is mature. It also produces things like Christians who are passionate about missions and about serving the community and about emptying ourselves, about being doers of God's word and not just hearers or collectors. I believe that theological conviction isn't actually a conviction until it produces some sort of action in the person's life. So let me say that again. A conviction theologically is not really a conviction unless or until it produces some action in your life. Even if the action is more worshipfulness, more deeper worship and connection, that can be an action as we sing, as we're together, and as we read scripture. It's a connection to Jesus. That's an action. So in short, we could say it this way. Our goal is orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy if orthocardia is present. So fill those in. I'm going to use lots of big words today. Have I bored you already? What does this mean, though? Okay, do you know the words ortho, like orthodontist? What does an orthodontist do? Your teeth, you come in all gap tooth and stuff, and then they, they put these tortures things on your teeth, and then they, you make your teeth straight. Ortho means like right or straight. So orthodoxy, doxa is belief or theology. So right belief or straight belief, right belief leads to, what's the next word? Orthopraxy, praxis is practice. It's living it out. It's behavior. It's action. So orthodoxy, so right belief leads to right living, right behavior, right practice. And maybe you've heard this part of the phrase up until now, But I'm going to add a second line to it. If orthocardia, cardia is the Greek word for heart. If your heart's been transformed, your heart can't, you you can't leave out heart transformation in this process. Because again, we know people who are theologically astute. They know the right answers. They have orthodoxy, but they're jerks. And then we know people that are all about just make sure that you're living right. You know, just follow the rules. And that's not necessarily what we're after either. We're after heart change. The gospel comes in. Jesus comes in and changes our heart. And as our hearts are transformed by the power of the love and grace and the redemption of Christ, then it helps us. Our minds become renewed. We we believe now this this beautiful beautiful thing called Christian doctrine. And then it begins to affect and and, and internalize us inside. And then then our, our lives reflect it outwardly. So this is the goal of all theological maturity, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, if orthocardia is present. This is is really what we're shooting for. The whole point of this is not to fill out the theological scantron test to get into heaven correctly. It's certainly not behavioral management. The goal of this is to form strong beliefs that produce healthy, godly lives of actionable love. Now, what's that? How does that hit you as a theological vision? Is that something that you want to partake of? Your silence is overwhelming. Okay. (laughs) Think about this. Think about this. Dwell on this. Okay. That's the vision. Let's dive into our topic. Given all of those things, this is a conversation that is for Christians, with Christians, and for Christians. Our topic today 
It's for those who have already been saved because we're talking about the beautiful gift of salvation. So this is not a conversation that you want to have with your atheistic uncle who is a God hater and a mocker. Okay, don't have this. Have this with your friend, your neighbor, who's a believer. We're on this side. So, so if this is a line and we cross the line of faith and we're, and we're saved, so this is for people on this side, on this side of salvation. What happens here is we're all saved and we've received Jesus. And then what we do is we look back and say, okay, how did that, how did that happen? How did I go from here to here? And we conversate and we think about these things. This should be like a conversation. You're sitting in a coffee shop having coffee with your friends and everybody's won the lottery and you're talking about how you got your lottery tickets. That should be the spirit of the conversation. That should be a fun conversation. It should be very joyful. It should be very fun. It should be very grace-filled. Oh, I got the ticket. I was just, you know, my grandma gave it to me for birthday, for my birthday or whatever your story is. And that's how it should be in its, in its joy and in the tenor of the conversation. But unfortunately, this particular theological conversation can be so divisive and so painful. Christians will get mad at each other. They'll get angry at each other. They'll cuss and swear at each other. And you're like, really? Do you even know this thing? And then they leave their church or their small group and they belittle each other. And it's just such a trip to me that this happens, right? There's so much passion here, but guys, that's not what we're going to do. We're not going to be that way. We're going to be chill. So we're just, we're going to chill out. Everybody's going to chillax. The young people still say that chillax over here. Let me do a check. Everybody's shaking their head. No. What do you guys say? Instead of chillax, what's the word? There is no word. This slaps. This conversation slaps. Is that what you said? Okay. So we're going to chill. Why is this so funny? I know. I'm just naturally funny. I get it. Let's begin. I'm going to give you some more big words. And it's going to help frame the conversation. Organize it. The first term on your handout is the term monergism. Fill that in. Monergism. This is the belief that our salvation is a mono, that is one force, one will is involved. There is one person making the choice of how salvation comes into a person's life, and that person is God. He is the one who's making the choice and not us. Monergism. Classic Calvinism is a form of monergism. That is, Calvinists believe that salvation is squarely and fully in God's hands and not in ours. The second term is called synergism. Now, this is the belief that there are two wills involved in salvation. And that is, firstly, God's will. But then God's will frees up a person's will. And then now that their will is freed up, they can respond or not respond to the gospel. We have a choice. Classic Arminianism is a form of a synergism. That is, do I want to receive Jesus or do I not want to receive Jesus? Synergists are not saying that somehow they self-save. If we're going to be fair to synergism, they're not saying this. And they're also not saying they partly save themselves. They're saying that there is a genuine role in making a choice regarding salvation, people do play a role, but the role simply is to choose to receive or not receive. 
Monergists say, no, even the ability to choose would be giving you too much credit. Only one will is involved. And sometimes monergists will speak of one-way love. It's God loving us. God reaching out to us while we were dead in our sins. So you may be wondering why I'm using these terms monergism and synergism and not Calvinism and Arminianism. Some of you are hearing these terms monergism and synergism for the very first time. Now, the reason I'm using these terms is because in our theological training, what they teach us in school is these are more accurate terms to use when discussing this topic. They more broadly describe the theological belief systems of Christian groups. For example, all Arminianists are synergists, but not all synergists are Arminianists. Those who embrace synergism include Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, uh, Methodists, Wesleyans, Nazarenes, some free will Baptists, and Anabaptists. Arminianism technically is one slice of the synergism pie. And it's a very specific response to monergism, to a specific slice of the monergistic pie. If you know monergism and Calvinism, you know that there's five-point Calvinists out there. Arminianists actually responded to five-point Calvinism somewhere in the 1600s to protest the tulip acrostic, Calvinists' five points. And so you have five-point Arminianists and five-point Calvinists, and they look at each other, and they give each other high fives. But it's more like this. Uh, But we use these bigger terms because they're more accurate. Now, depending, though, on a person's monergism or their synergism, that is going to drive how a person interprets biblical texts. So let's give you an example of a scripture that we, took, that we talked about last week. If you were here, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Let me put this on the screen, or you can look at this in your Bible. This is a classic passage. Many of us have, have uh, memorized this. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, he writes to the Ephesians for, let's actually say this, let's read this out loud together. This will be fun. I'll start. One, two, three. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Beautiful passage. Isn't this an amazing scripture? Just love this scripture. But the two groups look at this verse from different Sides, and they come to different conclusions. For example, a synergist looks at this and says, hey, wait a minute, everybody. It's right here. Here we see God's grace and our faith working together for salvation. We see them synthesizing here. Monergists say, well, I don't know, bro, because it's, let's look at the verse again. Monergists say, even your faith is from God. Your faith is a gift. It's not from yourselves, so only God can take credit, and you can't make faith work. And then the sinners just say, okay, point taken, but Paul is making the point that faith and work are totally different. They're not the same. They're two separate things. And then the monarchs just respond and say, listen, you didn't choose to be born. You had no say in your natural birth. You didn't consult your parents or interview sets of parents and then picked one before you, you were put on this earth. And so it is with spiritual rebirth. It's his choice only. Sinner just then respond, yeah, then will respond and say, yes, but this predestination that you speak of refers mostly to your conformity in Christ. It's actually a plan on how to live your life. 
similar to how I planned on teaching the content for this sermon. I, I have foreordained to teach this topic, but the people showing up, it was their choice to be here. It's still up to you whether you show up or not. And so we have this conversation that goes back and forth. And there's lots of examples as we look at scriptures that talk about choosing and election and predestination and these things. And synergists will approach it one way and monergists will approach it another way. And there's constant dialogue and conversations on, well, which, how does this all work out? Is anybody confused? Are you, are you learn? is this helpful so far? Okay. Thank you for the seven people who said yes. Appreciate that. Redeemer's Fellowship, where do we land in this? So it's, it's, it's like I said a couple of weeks ago. The church decided a while ago to not hitch our wagon to either monergism or synergism. These labels. Because we recognize that this tends to create confirmation bias in how we approach certain scriptures and how to interpret them. Instead, we choose to live in the tension of these views. And we're like, okay, God, we see, we see both of these approaches in scripture. And so we, so we, so we just kind of sit in the middle. We sit more neutral. You could say we're more Switzerland here. <laughs> hmm. We say, God, you're big enough. You're wise enough. You're powerful enough. You're complex enough, Lord to somehow make this all work out. And so what we do is we focus on, Lord, just help us love you and serve you. We're so grateful to you, Lord, for what you've done. Help us love you and serve you, Lord. That's our focus. That's our label, if you will. Now, to help us illustrate this a little bit further, I'm going to bring, if you don't mind, my wife, Christy, on stage, and we're going to do a little skit together to illustrate this. Is that, does that sound like fun? Okay, I think this, let's give Christy. So thank you, uh, Christy Reader. Uh, so you have a present, um, and this in our skit, represents the gift of salvation. This is the gospel. This is Jesus. And in the skit, Christy is God, and I am the sinner. Shut up. Who's... (laughs) Um, And... (laughs) And so the question is, how, do, how does a sinner get obtain this gift? And I want to look at four systems of theology on this. And this is the last part of your notes. And there's some more big words here. But hopefully this will, this will make sense. So the first system, and your first fill-in on this section, is Pelagianism. Pelagianism. Here's how you spell that. Pelagius was uh, a British monk who lived in 350 to like 420-ish. And he's famous for teaching this phrase, ought implies able. And what Pelagius meant by that is, if God says you ought to do something, then you should automatically have the ability to live it out and carry it out. Ought implies able. So to receive the gift of salvation you ought to be able to receive this with no help from God at all. Now, when he lived and he taught, he, he received resistance from the church. 
And there was another famous theologian named uh, St. Augustine or Augustine. St. Augustine wrote against Pelagius and branded him a heretic because ultimately Pelagius was teaching that the human will was not tainted by original sin And therefore, a person was basically good, and in their own strength and effort, they should be able to receive this gift or earn this gift on their own merits. And so Augustine came up and said, no, you can't teach that. The human human nature is too corrupt by original sin to believe this. So what what the Lord is going to do then to illustrate this is, is put the gift there and it's there. It's just there for the taking. And if I'm a good Pelagian person who believes this, this is how I go get it. I just, I can, you know, do good things. I can work myself out spiritually. Okay. And then I can grab it. If I want it, I can grab it. It's mine. It's mine. I got it. I got it. I earned it. It's mine. And I received the gift of Jesus through my own merits. This is a works-based salvation method. Now, what's interesting about this today is we we don't really practice, no forms of Christianity that we would call orthodox in any way practice this because it is heresy. But what we do see is essentially this is the cultural view of religion that most Americans hold. So America says, well, I don't know if there's a God, but if there is, I think he would let me into heaven because I've been basically a, right? So culturally, there is a form of sort of modern secular Pelagianism as the prevailing theological view in society. So you can't, I mean, theology is all around us. It's in films, it's in movies, it's explored uh, in, in almost every realm. You'll see this pop up. So that's Pelagianism. Is It's a works-based salvation. Okay, uh, here you go, Lord. There you can have that back. The next one is called semi-Pelagianism. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. What do I mean by that? In this view, God offers, uh, maybe, let's back up a little bit, Lord. Okay, thank you. Um, maybe, okay, so God offers the gift. It's there. And as a semi-Pelagianist, I want that gift. Semi-Pelagianism believes that the, the sin nature does taint, but not that much. So, I can go almost all the way over and grab the gift, but at the very end, the Lord has to step in and, and, and sort of make that transaction happen. So here's how semi-Pelagianism works. I'm, I'm a sinner, but I'm very capable, and so I want the gift, and I, I take a lot of steps to earn it, to earn it, and then just before I get there, the Lord does this. And so it's kind of a middle point in the systems that we're talking about. And this is semi-Pelagianism. And again, I think this does uh, represent a lot of views today. I forgot to mention this. If we go back one, 
to Pelagianism. That is a monergism, but it's a human monergism. Semi-Pelagianism is a synergism. Do you all follow this? Okay, I'll give the present back to the Lord for the next one. The next one is Arminianism. Jacob Arminianus was a Dutch theologian who lived in the 1600s. He was part of this great like groundswell of, of the Protestant movement. The Protestant movement started with, essentially started with Martin Luther uh, in the 1500s, the great German theologian and monk who, who, um, who, who sort of resisted the corruption of the Catholic Church and began to preach the scriptures. And, um, and, and, then, and along with Martin Luther, there was all these other reformers. And Jacob Arminianus was one. He was from the Netherlands. And he wrote and taught in something that we call uh, prevenient grace. Prevenient grace enables choice is the phrase here. Now, what do I mean by that? Arminianists believe that the sin nature of a human being makes them spiritually dead, makes them totally and completely spiritually dead. They are cut off from God, and essentially they have turned their backs on God. And God is back there, and there's no way because I'm spiritually dead, that I can earn salvation. But what happens with salvation for an Arminianist is the Lord comes along and bestows upon the sinner prevenient grace, and it looks like this. The Lord turns the sinner around to be able to see the gift of salvation. And in that turning around, the spiritual chooser is animated it's like it's turned on. The, the Wi-Fi is connected. But it's just the chooser. Before the chooser is dead, prevenient grace. And now, as the sinner, I, I am considering the gift of Jesus, and I can take it or not, because my chooser is now working spiritually. And so prevenient grace precedes the salvific gracious act of regeneration, and if I choose to receive the gift, now I'm saved. Does this make sense? Now, you may say, well, I ain't never heard of provenient grace before, and if you're not a Methodist, then of course you probably wouldn't have. But provenient grace is something that is taught in, in Wesleyan systems, Methodist systems, uh, maybe Anabaptist systems, if you're from those traditions, and it's not a saving grace, it's like a pre-saving grace. And it's a grace that it's an enabling grace. And it's the term that they use, Arminius systems use in this form of synergism to try to understand how a person who is spiritually dead could somehow overcome their spiritual deadness to then choose. And so this is how they organize that. Does that make sense? Oh, I've explained it so well. Okay, here we go. The last one is, is quite easy, and it's Calvinism. And uh, Calvinism basically just says, what do I have on here? Uh, we are all dead. We're dead, so God does all the choosing. And this is easy. So I'm the sinner, and I'm spiritually, I'm dead. And the only way that I can receive salvation is through divine intervention by God resuscitating me from my spiritual deadness. Don't you die on me. 
Don't you die on me. <laughs> yeah, I like it. <laughs> mouth to mouth. Okay, so that's a different sermon. <laughs> she agreed to do this. I'm sorry, honey. You did great. <laughs> so I received the gift by the pure grace of God doing all the choosing. So let's give Christy Reader a big hand. Actually, can I keep this? I think, I think the challenge that we have with Calvinism is you have to picture, I didn't say this in the first service, I should have, so you're getting extra. Uh, I think you have to picture like a bunch of dead bodies on the stage. And the Lord will walk by some of those to get, to get to the one he's chosen to resuscitate. And I think we have... I think we struggle with that. Do you struggle with that? I think we struggle with that. And then if the Lord has walked by people and he didn't choose them, and then we say, well, that person then doesn't get heaven, how is that fair? How is that just? And then the Calvinist will say, God can do whatever he wants, bro. He's good. He's holy. He's perfect. And so sometimes then the Calvinists will say, some Calvinists will say, well, God only chooses those whom he knew were going to choose him. And now we get into some Matrix stuff, like the movie The Matrix. Remember the last scene in the third movie, uh, Neo? Okay, it's really confusing. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And so we go back and forth. We wrestle with these things. We wrestle with these things. And the Calvinists are like, guys, let's not make, let's not make our salvation about anybody but God. And then, and then the Arminians are like, yeah, but, but I mean, come on. When I got saved, it sure did feel like I had a choice in the matter. And so we go back and we, and we wrestle with this, right? And so this is why this conversation is, is fun. It's compelling. And again, at Redeemers, we see... We see different sides to it. We see different scriptures to it. And, and we're, we're, we're aware of it. And we try to just take the scriptures as the Lord gives us the scriptures. And we love our Calvinist friends. We love our Arminianist friends. And we respect both. And if you come from a tradition strongly from one of those uh, churches or denominations, we, we hope that Redeemers can be a place where together we can still be brothers and sisters and we can, re, we can unite and lock arms and be a community that recognizes these things and it's respectful of these things, but we're also saying the bottom line is to trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. The bottom line is no person has to understand or accept either monergism or synergism in order to be saved. We just have to accept Jesus and what he's done for us. And in that, we can find beauty and unity. And that is our church. That is Redeemer's Fellowship. But let's make it about this. I'm glad you got this. I'm not quite sure how you got it, 
Oh, I'm glad you got it. Let's all get this. Let's give this out. Let's focus on that. Okay, that's the sermon. We did it. All right, we did it. Hopefully it's helpful. Was that helpful a little bit? Okay. All right. I'm going to pray for us. So let's all bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for the beauty of your scriptures and the mystery of some of these things. Lord, help us be theologically mature and sweet and kind and loving and gentle people and reflect the love and care of Jesus to a lost and dying world. I'm praying, Lord, that you would help us to unify over the things that we know the scriptures just unify us with and with the other things. I'm praying that, Lord, you would give us grace for one another. Lord, I thank you so much for this church family. May you make us effective in this life in giving the gift of Jesus to those who don't yet have him. Lord, we pray you would use us for this now. We thank you and we pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen.